The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Report brought to you by the Intra-Africa Trade Fair, where entrepreneurs, investors and governments from 55 African countries all meet to explore trade, business and investment opportunities. On the line to us from London this evening, Director and Africa Analyst at Signal Risk, Ronak Gopoldis Online. And it's the great reopening, I, I hope, one day to be able to take advantage of Mauritius's reopening, Ronak. It's uh, long overdue. Yeah, long overdue, and uh, I'm definitely taking advantage of it in December. You should book your, your flights, Bruce. Um, as from October, um, you know, it, it's, the country is open to vaccinated travelers. It's been a phased opening since, uh, since July, and, um, you know, tourism is really the lifeblood of the Mauritius economy, so um, something that they desperately need. Um, you know, what's quite interesting is that this grand reopening has coincided with the biggest COVID spike since the outbreak. So a bit of question marks around whether it's safe, but, um, you know, I think with 63% of the population vaccinated and the infection rates and fatalities really low, I think, um, you know, things are are pretty safe over there. Um, More importantly, though, the economy needs to recover. Experienced a 15% uh, negative growth rate last year. Um, and, you know, they're really trying to to pick up this this industry that's been decimated. Um, To put it in context, they're targeting... 325,000 tourist arrivals this year. Uh, in 2019, they had 1.3 million. Um, and, you know, given what else has happened last year with the oil spill, the EU anti-money laundering grey list and, and COVID, um, I think they, they really need some good news in the country. Most certainly do. And I just wonder how the economy really is holding up. I mean, when you go to Mauritius and you um, are deceived by the glory of the hotels and it's wonderful and the five-star luxury is brilliant and it's exceptional and the coastal areas are wealthy and the big golf estates that have been built over the years are incredible. And then you go slightly off the beaten track and there's just scenes that are all too familiar um, to us as South Africans of of the poverty. And I wonder whether or not uh, things have really you know, uh, turned for the worse for many people who live in that country? Yeah, I think Mauritius has done really well over the years. You know, it's transitioned from an agricultural to a, to a, to a, a kind of services economy and now a knowledge economy. Um, and it's always been really kind of responsive and open to, to the external environment. I think, you know, COVID has been a bit of a wake-up call to them. Uh, and they now, again, need to reinvent the, the economy. So, you know, I think, you know, they, they're also experiencing classic middle-income trap. Um, but there's a lot of good stuff happening on, on, the, on the island, uh, a lot of investment flows, um, particularly as a result of South Africa's struggles as well. Yeah, exactly right. Look, it's good news either way. Good news for them, good news for travellers, and uh, I'm sure they'll be welcoming people with with open arms, if not just to keep a distance between them. Um, How's Ethiopia doing? There's a new administration in place, but, you know, as we've learned in South Africa, new administrations don't immediately lead to to massive positive transformation of of the problems that uh, pre-existed the new administration. Yeah, so, I mean, the the election was quite a watershed election, and the second round concluded uh, last month, and, and now the new administration is in place. Uh, there are three big challenges over here. I think, number one, Abiy Ahmed needs to restore credibility in both himself and his administration. Um, you recall he got the Nobel Prize early on. He was hailed as a reformer, and, and a lot of that shine slipped. He's got to obviously address the situation uh, security-wise in the Tigray region, and then 
uh, said he's got to kickstart the policy agenda. Um, and he started to make some moves. You know, he's got a new cabinet, and about half of the, the previous cabinet was retained. I think there are two notable features over here. So in the security cluster, he maintained key allies, and the defense minister is from the Tigray region. Um, and then he included a number of opposition figures in, in his cabinet as well. And I think there's a bit of a balance here between continuity, a little bit of inclusivity, and some reform. And hopefully that alleviates some of the political tensions and get support for, for his policy agenda. But then, I guess, on a more negative front, um, there was also some institutional reform, which saw 20 key state institutions placed under the direct oversight of the Prime Minister's office. Uh, those included the National Bank of Ethiopia, the Ethiopian Investment Commission, the security agencies, uh, which is obviously not good for, for independence. Um, and, you know, I think it maybe indicates also that he doesn't entirely trust those with who are tasked with executing its policy agenda. So Ethiopia has got a lot of, lot of challenges ahead, economically, diplomatically, politically, and security-wise. So he's going to need to get moving quite soon. Yeah, I mean, what's going on in Nigeria? There's quite a lot brewing, it would seem. Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, if you look at the economy, uh, last year was really devastating, um, the oil price route and COVID. And, of course, the experience... FX shortages, uh, which meant that the central bank instituted currency controls, and they've continued really with this interventionist policy agenda. Growth is low, inflation's high, even though the debt stock is low, the debt service ratio is north of 70%, and the business environment, as we've seen with the likes of the multi-choice episode uh, recently, uh, con- continues to be hostile. So this is all negative for foreign investment. And then the, the states are at loggerheads with the central government about this, this fat issue, which I mentioned last time. Um, and so Nigeria's economy uh, has some challenges. Of course, the oil price ticking up nicely now um, is good news. Um, but, you know, when you overlay this with a political context where succession politics is already starting and the political jockeying ahead of the 2023 election um, has started um, and question marks are arising around who's going to succeed President Buhari. I think that's another distraction, you know. Um, so there's a lot of musical chairs, you know, there's, there's speculation that Good Luck Jonathan is going to defect to the ABC party and contest again. Uh, and then there's the ethno-religious um, considerations, you know, is the, the next candidate going to be another northern Muslim or a southern Christian? Um, so the pre-election landscape is heating up, um, and obviously in Nigeria, this is this is quite dynamic and, and unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, if our countries could just do with fewer politicians or less uh, less political activity, I think we'd all be a lot better off. The amount of time that's wasted and energy that's sapped and money, oh, my goodness gracious me. Um, the relationship between the DRC and China. Now, China's often criticized for the sorts of contracts that it undertakes with countries that are desperate for any kind of investment or any kind of aid or help. Um, and is the DRC digging in its heels? What's going on there? Yeah, so interesting developments over here because uh, the government recently commenced a review of all mining contracts in the country. Um, and, you know, this they examined loan conditionality and Chinese firms have, have borne the brunt of the scrutiny to date. And uh, this has kind of raised eyebrows as to why this is happening. So, I mean, there's all, all the usual stuff, you know, is the state getting a fair portion of the revenue? Are local populations not being exploited? Are they compliant with the mining code? But I think that the bigger reason is that as part of the DRC's 
program, the ECF program with the IMF, which they started in 2019. They need contract transparency and they need to publish the, all the, the mining contracts. Um, and this is, this is a, a key condition around IMF funding. So I don't think it's explicit antagonism towards China. I think the fact that China tends to be the dominant player um, you know, in the country, in the mining sector, means that there's the scrutiny. Um, and also a lot of these contracts were signed under the, the regime of Joseph Kabila. So I think there's, there's kind of going to be natural scrutiny. Um, but I, I don't think this compromises the relationship. I think um, there's too much codependency. And if anything... I think uh, this could have a positive impact on investor sentiment. Um, you know, boost for transparency. Uh, it could pave the way for alternative sources of funding like the IMF, um, interest from international partners. And the U.S. is, is starting to intimate that it, it sees the DRC as a strategic country in Africa. So some of their security uh, inputs could, could spill over to, to economic uh, benefits as well. So... It's a space worth watching quite closely, but I don't really think it, it indicates uh, a change in the DRC-China relationship. Ronak Gopoldis, thank you. He is Director and Africa Analyst at Signal Risk. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to speaking to him in the next couple of weeks, of course, here on The Money Show on our Africa Business Report. Join Africa's largest trade and investment fair in South Africa. Intra-Africa Trade Fair gives you access to more than a 1,000 exhibitors, 10,000 visitors and buyers, 5,000 conference delegates in more than 55 countries. Participate in trade and investment deals worth 40 billion US dollars as businesses and government come together to explore business and networking opportunities at the International Exhibition. Brought to you by the Africa Export Import Bank and their premium partners, the Intra-Africa Trade Fair 2020. 21 transforming africa